you open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, we're going to continue our study through this great, great book. We titled the series, Overcome and Assured, How to Live an Overcoming Life and a Life of Assurance. And that's our focus, and it's John's focus as we go through this. Uh, I have a son uh, who's beginning the process of driving. That's fun. Um, and we, we got through Angelo, okay, and uh, Ben will do great. We're not worried about that. But it, it, it reminds me that if you remember, if you've had children, you've gone through this process, um, you get in a car with them, and there's, there's two things in your mind. One is encouragement, because you know this is kind of scary. This is new. Well, we hope it would be new at this point. Um, and you're encouraging them. So you can do this. You know, it's okay. Relax. You know, you'll do just fine. But then there's the other party that warns them. You'll do just fine, but slow down. <laughs> or pay attention to other traffic. Or pay attention to the conditions. And so as we get in a car with our children, oftentimes we, we present them with encouragement. And then with some warnings. Because both are needed. That's what John's doing in this letter. That's what we're going to read in this passage. John is a spiritual father to them. He pro provides encouragement. But then he also provides warning. And so let's look at both those things. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. John writes, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. And I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, that's not from the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God, he abides forever. Let's pray. God, it strikes me that as we bow before your word, we would pray very similar as we do as we give thanks around the dinner table. We ask God that you'd bless this food, this spiritual food. Nourish it to our bodies and to our spirit. Strengthen us by it, God. Give us insight that we could see you, that we could hear you. For it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. John gives away encouragement by a, a repetitive words you'll notice. I am writing. He's taking his pen. He's sitting down with, I'm sure, face in his mind. He says, I'm writing you. And he writes some very specific things. Now, it's very specific in that it's kind of important we understand who is John writing to? Who does he mean to write to? In the first part of this section, John twice addresses readers as children, and then as fathers, and then as young men. And each time in that order. The question raised then is by doing so, is he addressing three different levels of spirituality? I mean, is what, is what John's trying to say is, are some infants in the faith, 
while others are growing to spiritual adolescence? And are there others who are, quote, senior in their faith? As attractive as that sounds, I don't think the text supports it. And so we're going to look at it, what I believe, a little bit more literally by interpretation. He begins by saying in verse 12, like he has in other places and will, he says, I'm writing to you little children. That word little has the idea of dear, intimate address. I'm writing to you dear children. And he's done this throughout the book, and it's the whole idea of all Christians. So when you see that word children, think all Christians. He says, I'm writing to you. You're special to me. You're dear children. So everybody pay attention is kind of what he's saying. And it certainly reflects his attitude of, of John towards his readers, this affection he has for them as a spiritual father. And maybe you have some younger Christians in your life who you consider a, a, a spiritual adult to. Um, I, I have some precious friends, Hilmer and Bonnie Ekstrom, and it's inevitably whenever I see them, uh, they address me as dear son in the faith. Uh, that kind of address. It's kind of John's idea uh, when he says, I'm writing to you, you're dear to me, you're in the faith. He says, I write to you, dear children. In the end of verse 12, he says, the reason I'm writing to you, dear children, is because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. He's already spoken to them about forgiveness, remember in chapter 1, about those who confess their sins. It's something that applies to all believers, that we're forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. And so he addresses them on that. And this supports the view that children in this verse certainly applies to all believers. And so that's, again, he begins it that way. Now I like the, um, the end of verse 12. I thought it was very instructive. Your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I've often had people address me, you know, I, I prayed to receive Jesus and maybe I did it over and over. So I wasn't sure if it stuck the first time. And even then, they might say, I'm not sure though. Am I really a Christian? How would I know? How could I be assured I'm a Christian? I think there's a, one clue here at the end of verse 12. It's found in the words, for his name's sake. And one of the things I'd ask you is that whose sake do you live for? If in your mind you're like, no, I live for Jesus, you can be assured that you're a child of God. I think that's one way we're assured is there's something in our heart and our spirit now that longs to live for something much greater than ourselves to live for him. And that provides assurance to us, I believe. And so he writes to all Christians, but now he narrows the focus to fathers. He says in verse three, uh, 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. In verse 14, he says the same thing. I've written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I think he moves to being very specific here, and I said there's no indication to, that we should not take this literal. He's writing to fathers, dads, we could say. And as he addresses them, he uses the masculine just like he does young men, and it reflects that first century way of thinking, so women, you're not off the hook. This is for everybody. And so if you're a spiritual parent, you could say, um, you should pay attention close. And his exhortation is, because you've known him who is from the beginning. Now, who exactly is the one they've known? Jesus Christ. He is the one who is from the beginning. Matter of fact, John began his whole book, if you remember, this way. What was from the beginning? 
what we heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we beheld, our hands handled concerning the word of life. And so he's talking about these fathers who've known Christ from the beginning. From the beginning of their spiritual experience for the duration of time it took, dads, fathers, he says, you've known him who is from the beginning. And again, that word, we'll revisit it again, is, is a term of not knowing the facts, not knowing generalizations, but knowing him in relationship. He says, dads, fathers, you've known Christ. You've known Christ from the beginning, and you've known him who was from the beginning. He's existed from the beginning of time, and these fathers you know in relationship, this awesome, this powerful, this, this limitless, timeless one, you know him. He addresses them. I think that is an encouragement to them, that they had a relationship with Christ, and it was a significant thing. But now he moves on. Verse 13. Not only am I writing you fathers, I'm writing to you young men. Because you've overcome the evil one. We'll stop there. And he addresses the young men a little bit later. We find in verse 14. I've written you young men because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you've overcome the evil one. This refers to people of fewer years. Not people of a level spirituality. Because you can, you can be older in years and spiritually be still an infant. So he's talking to younger men. So teenage boys, if you're in your 20s, Caleb's age, okay, he's writing to you. This is kind of cool, huh? And so this is written to you. So pay attention, young men, young women. He's talking about this. He's, he's exhorting them to remain and affirming specifically to remain in the faith. And some specific things he said I think were very instructive. Because what? You've overcome the evil one. You have overcome the evil one. And I think by implication, there are others around them outside of Christ who have not overcome the evil. He says, but you young men, you're in the faith. You've overcome the evil one. And while you might have your peers all around you sinking, getting buffeted and beat up, you, Christian young man, you've overcome the evil one. Now the word overcome... Uh, is a verb, it's important, it's in present tense, or I should say perfect tense, it means the overcoming has happened and is continuing to happen. They've overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. They're saved, they're secure in Christ, but they continue to overcome and experience. And he's saying, you young men, you've overcome the evil one. And he, again, at the end of verse 14, addresses them and mentions three specific encouragements. He says, you're strong. We need to be reminded of that, don't we? The word of God abides in you. You have a resource of God's word in you. You've read it. You've been trained in it. You're studying it. It abides in you. There's a work taking place in you because of the word of God. And again, you've overcome the evil one. And so this speaks to you young Christian men and women. Let me ask you, does this describe you? Honestly, look at this. Could you say you're strong? Not perfect, but you're strong in Christ. You're strong in your convictions. You're strong in your faith. You're strong in your resolve to live for him and his calling in your life. Would that describe you? Are you strong? Does the word of God abide in you? Are you reading God's word? As we sit on Sunday morning, are you open? Are you taking it seriously? Are you maybe working at memorizing, meditating upon it? Are you taking seriously the word of God that is so much so that it abides in you and doesn't work in you? And are you overcoming the evil one? Are you standing in the strength of Christ and experiencing victory? We'll never do it perfectly. 
We could beat ourselves up. I think maybe that's one of the reasons John writes encouragement. You might not be doing it perfect, guys, but you're strong. You're strong in Christ, and he's encouraging them, he's affirming them. You see, this can be your experience, young men and young women. It can be. Maybe you haven't thought about this season of your life and how significant because you lay a foundation. And your future depends a lot upon the foundation you lay now. Not just your future. Maybe your future spouse. Your children. They depend upon you even now. Even though you may never get married or you may. The foundation you lay now is significant. God wants you to be strong. He wants the word of God to abide in you. He wants you to live an overcoming life. I think sometimes young men, especially teenage boys, will look at the church and say, you know what, the the church and kind of the involvement, my input into it, that's only for the older guys. I'll wait till I become an older guy before I involve myself with the church. Isn't it interesting, John wrote to young men and women. He said, no, you're part of this thing. You're part of this body. And you got a role now. Not 20 years from now, now. So young men and women, John wants to encourage you. He says, you're strong. Remain strong in your convictions. Remain strong in Christ. Let the word of Christ abide in you. And you're an overcomer. You can, you can do this. You can walk in Christ's victory and experience victory that your peers might not. And there might be some even other Christian peers who might laugh at you for the stand you take might not understand why you're so con- committed to Scripture. But you remember this, these words. Remember what John's saying to you. He's encouraging you that you can do this, but these, that these things are important. Now, beyond the present context, John uses this word overcome a further four times. I think it's important as we put it together what he's trying to say. In chapter 4, verse 4, the readers are said to overcome those who are... Who are Oh, you overcome them, he says, by God's power. You overcome those who are in the world, these antichrists, by God's power. He goes on to say, the greater is he who is within you than he is within the world. That would be the devil. In chapter 5, those who born of God overcome by the world by their faith. They overcome the world by their faith in God. He goes on to say in chapter 5 later, readers are said to be protected by Christ. And so if we put this whole idea of overcoming together with all of it, we can say that the author understands believers' victory over the evil one to be achieved because God himself abides in them. He's greater than the evil one. And that his son, Jesus Christ, protects them. And as a result, they're able to overcome the evil one through their faith in God. So as we exercise our faith, we we walk in the protection of Christ, and we stand with, with great conviction in the truth that greater is he who is within me than he who is within the world. And we can walk in victory and we can overcome. Greater is Christ in you, claim it. Greater is Christ who within you, never forget it. Call upon his strength, draw upon it daily because greater is he who is within you than he who is within the world. Young men and women, I know these are very challenging years. There's a lot of things being thrown your way. Maybe the idea of challenging authority all around you, this challenging of ideas, all the pressures going on. What I remember being this very real responsibility begin to set in a little bit in those teenage years. My dad, I remember, would warn me often. Um, he would say, Matt, 
you protect your sisters no matter what. Okay, sure. But then he would get, this is like middle of my high school years, Matt, you make sure you protect your sisters. It's your responsibility when I'm not there. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, he's serious about this. And it was your idea, Matt, your proximity to your sisters, especially my younger sister Mary, has put you in a position of great responsibility. Don't blow it. It's time you step up. It's time you be strong. Defend your sisters, watch out for them, and take care of them. And God help you if you mess with my sisters. <laughs> Man alive, I took that word seriously. And I still am very protective of my sisters. They would tell you maybe too much so. But if someone was messing with them, I'd defend them. I would defend them. Young men in the faith, I'll say this to you. You're at that place right now where the responsibility becomes real. Bullets are real now, so to speak. You have younger believers around you. You have siblings. You have your sisters in Christ. You're also called to be strong for them, to help protect them. Someone messing with them, you defend them. You be strong. The Word of God abide in you. You can live life as an overcoming because God calls you to live a life that's such. Well, if you're a young child here, you're thinking, man, I'm off the hook. Uh-uh. Let's keep reading the letter because he's not done talking to everybody in the family of God. He says, I've written you children because you know the Father. Now, I stop there because right at this point, you might be tempted to think, well, he already talked about dear children, and he's talking about all the church, but not this Greek word. This Greek word is talking to, literally, young children. So, young children, pay attention. He's got some things to say to you. He says, young children, and i got to stop there because I think it's important we understand what John's doing. By addressing these young children, he communicates their value. He says, you, you matter. You matter to the church. This letter just isn't for those who are older or those young men, young women. This is for you, little ones. Young children, you have known him. You know Christ. And John says, I want you to know you matter. You have great value in the kingdom. You're valuable members of the body. You know the Father. You have a personal relationship with him. And as a young child, walk in the light. Obey his commands. And so young children, don't ever forget this. You are an important part of the church. And John is reminding you of that. You're a significant part of this church. Our body would really sadly, we, we'd really miss you if you weren't here. You add such vitality to the church. You matter. And what you do matters. Keep following God. Refuse to let classmates, maybe neighbors, or others distract you from following God. The God you know. Little, dear children, everybody, he writes to us. Fathers, young men, and small children. He's pretty much covered the body. This letter is one of great encouragement to everybody. We should be encouraged as we read this. That we have a place, that we have a role, and that God can work in us. And we can live an overcoming life. But with that encouragement, now comes warning. We see it in verse 15. You can almost sense a, a tone change if you were trying to predict what John's tone would be if he spoke it. You almost sense a tone change. Do not love the world. 
We'll stop there. <laughs> Do not love. Here he's focused on the pleasure and the gratification one hopes to receive. It's this idea of setting affections on the wrong things. This idea of being devoted to misplaced affections. John's saying, don't love the world. Now the word world we need to think about, often used in the Bible, it's talking about cosmos. In other words, the world, literal, God so loved the world, the cosmos. In this word, world, not in this one, but in other senses, can be used for material world, actual soil of the earth, the whole of creation. But here it doesn't refer to that. It refers to the worldly system, might be another way to put it. Do not love this worldly system. Now he's going to go on to define what that is, the specifics of what it is. But in a word, it means don't be taken up with all that's in this world. Don't be taken up with all the pollution around you. Seek to do God's will. Instead of seeking man's will, instead of seeking all the things of this world, seek God's will. Because what's this outcome of loving the world? Love for God's not operating in your life. You can't have two masters. Either you love the one or hate the other. Jesus said that, and John's kind of reiterating it here. He says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if you've set your affections, if your devotion is towards this world and the things of the world, John's saying, you better back up the truck. The love of the Father is probably not in you. Now we need to stop and think, who is it we love more? I mean, who is it we're ultimately devoted to? Who has our great desire? Who has our heart? John says, this is the time to evaluate it. Who do you love? And then he goes on to describe this worldly system for us, lest we're not sure what it is. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh. This is defined as a, defined as a desire, a craving, a longing, a desire for what is forbidden. By the way, you could take each of these three things and go back to the Garden of Eden and find out in the original temptation that uh, Adam and Eve, all three of these desires were there. We could do that, but we're not going to for time's sake. But you could do that. And it certainly would be a proper application. And lust of the flesh are these out-of-control desires. Now often, we often limit lust to sexual things, and certainly it is. But John has something more in mind here than just that, although that's significant in and of itself. It includes anything that gratifies a normal appetite, a normal desire in an abnormal way. That's what he's trying to get at. That's lust of the flesh, when you gratify a normal appetite in an abnormal way. Let me give you an example. Hunger's normal, right? Gluttony's abnormal. Gluttony is a lust of the flesh. Proverbs doesn't speak very highly of gluttony. Thirst is normal. Drunkenness, on the other hand, is abnormal. That's a lust of the flesh. Sleep, normal? Yep. Laziness, slothfulness? No. That's a lust of the flesh. Sex? normal God created great gift but abused and distorted that's a lust of the flesh whether it's adultery immorality or whatever they're all lusts of the flesh and they're things of the world they're not of God Galatians 5 19 through 21 speak to this and I'm just going to use this one I could use a bunch of others which speak to this but listen to what Paul writes to this church about this whole idea of the lust of the flesh now the deeds of the flesh, we could say lust of the flesh, are evident. Verse 19, 
which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. In other words, if you can think of something else. <laughs> of which I forewarn you, just that I, as I have forewarned you, that those who practice these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, these are all a result of being controlled by our desires rather than God's directives. And John wants us to know, don't love the world because what makes up this world is the lust of the flesh. But he's not done. He goes on to talk about the lust of the eyes. You see, these temptations, they get into through our eyes. You could put it this way, eyes plus lust equals sin. Our eyes are significant, what we see. If you and I were driving down the road, let's say you are, I don't want to be in a car with you at this point. If you were driving down the road and your eye caught something, you know, sometimes you'll see something you think or just out of the corner of your eye, and oftentimes we glance. But if you fixate on that, and you just lock in on that thing you're passing, you're going to crash because you're no longer paying attention to where you're going. Your focus, you kind of what you focus on determines where you go. And if your eyes are focused on lustful things, you're going to crash. John's warning them. The lust of the eyes is destructive. Matter of fact, James describes a process in 1, 13 through 15. He uses a fishing term. And he says, as we as Christians going through our lives, there's times we, we are looking at things and Satan will put a bait out in front of us. And the fishing term James uses is this uh, practice of taking the bait and that they would hang it over and try to lure the fish out from underneath the protection of rocks. And when the fish came out and took the bait, James says, that's sin. In other words, their eyes would see it However, they didn't have to go for it. There was temptation. The bait was hanging out there. They were safe, but they took the bait. And as a Christian, there's stuff thrown in our eyes constantly. And we have a choice in that matter. I can stay under the protection of God's truth because we're all tempta temptations, not sin in and of itself. We're safe there. But once we leave the protection of God's word and his umbrella of truth and we take the bait, We've sinned. What Paul, John's saying here is there's a lust of your eyes. You're going to see things you want. You're going to see things that really appeal, just like the apple in the garden. But don't take it. Stay under the protection of God's truth. Let's be honest. The advertising world plays to this. And the next time you face a typical temptation, think about it for a moment, evaluate it, Watch for your struggle between your desires and reason. Right? We, we struggle with our desires, and there's another part of us that reasons it's probably not a good idea. And if, if the sin becomes this desire that overcomes, it will overcome our reason. If we sin, desire has overcome reason. It's because of the lust of our eyes. If we, you and I want to overcome, we need to stand firm in protection under God's truth. That's why in verse 17, he says, and don't think it's the world's desires will pass away. The one who does the will of God abides forever. Why? Because he's safe in the will of God. He's safe there. The advertising world wants to convince you 
that certain shoes will make you jump higher. Convince you that a certain car will make you look more successful. They'll convince you a certain scent and clothes will, will attract the opposite person's attention. What are they doing? They're playing into the lust of the eyes. They want us to see. And as Christians, we operate on a different agenda. They want us to see this thing and jump towards it. God says, no, stay put under the protection of my word. Because the world and its desires are going to pass away. But make no mistake, there are things in this world you can love, and they come through your eyes. And so be careful, he warns us. Jesus in Matthew 5, 28 says, But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. In other words, when eyes get together with lust, sin occurs. There's these inner desires within us which become a gateway to sin. John's warning us that part of loving the world is there's a part of the world system that appeals to our sight. Be careful, he says. Watch out, I warn you. It's not the only thing. It's not only the lust of the flesh, it's not only the eyes of life, but it's the boastful pride of life. It says that's not from the Father. That's from the world. What's he talking about? This pride of life, this thing, it has this idea of empty bragging. The idea it's about what sustains your life. Look what I have. Look what I've done. It's me, not he, is kind of the idea. It seems to convey the idea of trying to impress others by what you possess. You're ensnared by worldliness and worldly things. And you can actually become proud of your worldliness. Look how much I got. I mean, look how entrenched I am in the things of this world. We actually can become proud of that. He's saying that's not of the Father. That's of the world. This idea of self-display, self-glory, pride, it's not of the Father. So having described what makes up the world system, we're reminded that those attitudes, and those values of the world, they're not of the Father. And so clearly John says if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now it struck me as I looked at verse 17 a little bit more that worldliness or loving these things of the world is completely useless. I mean, think about it for a minute. It's incompatible with godliness, for one. They're opposites. I mean, do not love the world because it's hard. You can't love the world and God at the same time. Do not love the world. It's incompatible. You can't pursue both. But it's also a waste of time. Look at verse 17. Talk about a waste of time. The world's passing away as is its lusts. I mean, it's, it's all going, so if you're going to love that, you're loving something that's just not even going to last. I'd call that a waste of time. Worldliness brings nothing, nothing that lasts. No fruit. Oh, it promises a lot, but in the end it delivers nothing. And John states that what will last is the will of God. That won't pass away. And so invest your life in the will of God. And you'll be investing in that which will last. The things of this world are kind of like holding water in your hand. It's going to seep out. It's not going to last. But God's will, on the other hand, that will endure forever. Let's wrap this up. Implications for young, young men, and old. No matter where you're at, these are for all of us. First, all Christians, John's writing here, affirms that all Christians have an important part in Christ's church. Young and old, men and women, you and I are all encouraged to grow toward God, to seek his will, that which lasts. You matter. 
Every single one of you in the faith matter. And you and I are all called, no matter what age, to follow Christ. All Christians have an important part in Christ's church. All Christians must protect themselves from worldly affections. It seems to me it's often the little things, the little affections we have over time, without addressing them, without stopping the cycle, those pursuits start to take their toll. And if you want a perfect word picture, read the life of Solomon. His life is one of a process of erosion. It was the little things he compromised. They became bigger and bigger and bigger. Solomon just didn't all of a sudden crash. There were little compromises along the way. Things his, he, he became careless in what he set his affections on. Don't do that. Solomon stands as a sober warning to me and to you. Stop the cycle. Stop the pursuits now. Instead, give yourself to habits of holiness. Grow. Repeat those habits of holiness, whatever they are. Go through them. All Christians must protect themselves from worldly affections. Again, young, youngsters, middle school or teenagers, young men, teenage women, and adults, all of us need to do that. And three, all Christians must put to death the flesh, the deeds of the flesh. We try all the things that seems to reform the flesh. We try to restrain it by, I don't know, cutting back a little, might be the phrase. God's answer to the flesh, kill it. Spiritually speaking, of course, not physically. Spiritually, kill it. Put it to death. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. He says it in Romans 6, 6 through 7. The answer is not in babying our flesh. It's killing it. It's bringing it under the authority of God's word. It's bringing it under the authority of what Christ has done for us. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Each day you and I are to relinquish our desires, relinquish our rights to Christ, because we no longer live. We're dead. It's Christ who lives within us. So next time you're tempted with a behavior, ask yourself this. Christ lives within me. Would Christ do this? Because if I want to steal and cheat and lie, I can't do that because I'm dead. Dead men don't steal. Dead men don't cheat. Because Christ lives within me. I'm choosing another behavior. I'm choosing another path. And by doing that daily, we put to death the deeds of the flesh. And I'm convinced a significant part of that is God's Word. God's Word expresses our need, but also stirs within you and I this desire for holiness as the Spirit of God works. It's an important part of the way you and I put to, deed, put to death the deeds of the flesh. And when you and I begin to get our, cast our, or, um, take our eyes off from the things that, that feed our flesh, don't be surprised when the flesh begins to die and cry and whimper a little. Our flesh is going to hang on like a dirty dog. It's how, don't you wish it was just be gone? And we wouldn't be tempted anymore, and the deeds of our flesh wouldn't, wouldn't throw themselves in our face, but it's not that way, and you know it. The death of the flesh is never pleasant. It hurts, and it will cry, and it will whimper. It will begin to try to justify, oh, just one more. Or this will be the last time. You've probably said the same things. That's that flesh trying hard not to relinquish its hold on you. But don't fall. You can do this. John's writing. You can put to death the deeds of the flesh by standing in his overcoming power. And fourth application, 
all Christians will find the best way to experience God's will is to love God completely. That's the best way to experience God's will is to love God completely. While we do need to address and discern worldly affections, you and I could focus our life on not lusting. We could focus our life on not boasting. We could try to focus our life on not thinking about bad things. We could focus on not, 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 not. I'm convinced probably one of the greatest ways to walk in victory is to not focus on not, 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 but to focus on loving God more completely, obeying him more fully. And those things will begin to take shape. Yes, there's disciplines we need to engage in. I'm not saying that. But set your fo focus fully on Christ, loving him, adoring him, and obeying him and giving him pri um, priority in your life. Because you're going to find and I'm going to find greater victory as a believer in this world when we love God. And so, Christian, be encouraged by what John's writing. But be warned. Because if you don't take seriously what he's saying, you'll crash. There's going to be heartache ahead for you. But you live according to what John's saying, and if you heed his warnings, you can live an overcoming, and you can live a assured life. And that's what God's desire for you is. Let's pray. Lord, I come before you with my brothers and sisters, and we confess none of us have this thing figured out. We, it seems half of our life we're stumbling and bumbling and trying to walk in holiness. And I guess maybe that's one of the many reasons I'm so grateful for your word. It tends to make things a whole lot clearer. Instead of me trying to roll my sleeves up, and us trying to hunker down and, and do better, we realize, God, that we already have the overcoming power within us because of your presence in our life. And that we can live a life of victory by walking in faith. Faith in you. Staying safe under the protection of your will. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement this morning that we can do it, that we can walk in victory in you. Whether we're young, young man, young woman, child, father, mother, no matter what station in life we have, God, we can walk in victory. So, Lord, I pray that we'd be encouraged, that it's not impossible. But, God, I pray we'd be warned. It's difficult to do in the worldly system we live in. We're not called to be of this world. Because we have a different home. This world's not our home. And yet, Lord, as we go through this polluted environment around us, this worldly system, help us to lock in on you, to stay focused on you and your will. And, Lord, to not make any provision for the flesh. Lord, to not goof around or not play around and skirt the edges, but to lock in on you, to follow you and to build our love relationship with you, God to be strong in you and let the word of God abide in us, God. So, Lord, we just invite your spirit to have your way in our life. There's no other way we can live this Christian life out but by your power. And so, Lord, we stand in you this day. Please help my brothers and sisters this week as we go through the week and help us to continue to walk in victory and continue to bring to our minds these verses this week. Lord, that they would direct us and guide us and protect us. Lord, I pray this for your glory, and I pray this in the power of your name.